welcome to Redeemer Kingsville Sermon Series, taken from Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Kingsville, Maryland. So like I mentioned, last week we saw the testimony of John the Baptist, who, after being questioned by various deputations from the religious leaders at Jerusalem, said that he was not the Christ, neither was he the prophet, neither in his own knowledge, although Jesus would say otherwise, was Elijah. But instead, he had been sent, his whole baptizing mission, amongst other things, but was first and foremost to identify the Messiah, the one that he had become to prepare the way for, that very Jesus who he identified as the Lamb of God who comes to take the sins of the world away. It was this Jesus that he saw that the dove descended from heaven, God's very spirit. And we talked about how when that happened, it was a sign not only that the Messiah had arrived in Jesus, who John had introduced in his prologue in verses 1 through 18, as the very Son of God, unique in his relationship with his Father, one in being but separate in person. It was this Jesus who had come to recreate a world that had fallen away from him, a world that had been plunged in sin and in darkness, that he had come to turn back to love and relationship with his Father, to recreate it, if you will, through the power of that Spirit that had descended and remained on him. Remember that important? No, it had remained on Jesus. And John bore testimony. He bore witness to him. And this morning, as we turn to the call of Jesus' other disciples, we'll see that there are others who will bear testimony to this very same one who will be identified by Nathanael as the Messiah, as the King of Israel, the Son of God, but reinforced by Jesus as the Son of Man. So let's start in verse 35 there. We see that John is in Bethany, presumably still over in the Transjordanian region, still baptizing, still having a collection of his own disciples, despite the fact that he knows that his ministry is coming to an end. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? It's, it's amazing It's amazingly humbling to see how John takes this news. For those years of his ministry, after he had gone into the wilderness, he had worn camel hair. I think I had had at least somebody, one of the kiddos, come up to me and said, what made John the Baptist different? I said, I don't know. If you saw a guy who lived out in the desert wearing camel hair, eating bugs and honey, would you consider that different? And they said, yeah. I said, well, I guess that's what made John the Baptist so different. In a real way, he had taken up that prophetic mantle. His whole ministry had been about preparing Israel to receive their true and rightful king, to call them to repent, to even baptize them. In that authority, showing the disposition the repentance that they should have in preparation for the coming Messiah. But now that Jesus has come, now that John himself will confess that his entire ministry and its chief function has been fulfilled as he has identified the Messiah, now he knows that his job is coming to an end. He knows that those who are following him should more rightfully go to follow another. And as we'll see in chapter 3 later in this gospel, He takes it as we would expect the Baptist to, with complete submission to the master whose sandal 
he's not even worthy to untie. Do you remember we spoke about that? That was not a job that disciples should have for their master. They shouldn't have to touch or wash their feet. But John's single-minded devotion to his task meant that he could humbly continue with his identification of Messiah and even allow his ministry to wane in the face of that star rising, that very star of Judah that had been anticipated by Balak thousands of years ago in an attempt to curse the Israelites. And so as he's standing with his two disciples, he sees Jesus and he fixes his eyes on him and he reinforces that the Lamb of God is there in their midst. And so two of his disciples follow after Jesus. Notice that they, probably more than any of their other colleagues or any other of their peers, understand most rightly the message of their master John. For them it would be inappropriate to stay any longer with the one who had just come to prepare the way rather than go with the way, the truth, and the life himself. So they follow after him. This is common language of a rabbi and their master. They would literally follow. They would go behind as in a trail. And so what they're saying here is that they're saying that we want to follow you. We want to come after you. We want to be your disciples. But they haven't received a formal invitation yet. It wasn't so easy. Of course you could follow after whoever you wanted. But in order to gain that confidence, in order to gain that special relationship of teacher to student, master to pupil, You had to receive an invitation. So notice what Jesus turns. He turns and he asks them. He says, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? He doesn't give them quite what they want, does he? He doesn't say, hey, come and be my disciples. Be my first. Instead, he he asks them, what are you seeking? What do you think that you'll receive By coming after me. What is the nature of your belief? You can almost see as John is writing this. Recalling this incident. Because in fact, he might very well be the second disciple here. We don't know for sure. But notice that the second disciple is unnamed. And John will continue to refuse to name himself through this gospel. So as he's writing, he may very well be remembering this incident and chuckling as he writes it down. Because what he's saying is that Jesus wants them to confess their belief. What are you seeking? Who do you think that I am that you would follow after me? But notice they're not just there yet. Andrew and this other disciple, they're they're not quite there yet to proclaim him in the same way that their master John had. They see there's something different about him. They see that their master has identified the Lamb of God. They're not quite there. So they say, Rabbi, where are you staying? They want to know. They're not just looking for free room and board here. Although it's understandable it's getting late, right? So they're not just looking for a free place to stay. What they're looking for is a private conversation with him. They want some intimate time where they can sit with him and talk to him and speak to him. So Jesus says to them, he says, come and you will see. Come and you will see. You see, he's already been introduced as the word. He's already been introduced as that very word of God, which pierces into 
the darkness of men's minds and hearts and calls them away from their sin and their destitution. But now in this passage, we're going to be constantly assaulted with this idea of seeing. The title of seeing is believing. So now we're given another sense by which Jesus is identifying himself. Even as he had identified himself as the word, now he's asking them to engage another sense. To look and to see with their eyes who he is. To come and follow him. To come and really sit at the feet of the great one, the rabbi, the teacher. It's a call to believe. It's a call to believe the testimony of the Baptist. To hear this man speak, to watch him in all of his graces, in all of his gifts, to watch him and to know that he's not like any other man. That their discipleship cannot be like any other discipleship that has come before them, whether that be the Baptist or Moses or anything in between. But the discipleship to which they are seeking would be different because they would sit at the feet, not just of rabbi teacher, but the very son of God. And so they go and they stay with him for the rest of that day. And after hearing him, after having presumably that private conversation, we don't have privy to it. John doesn't put exactly what Jesus said or the schedule or outline of events that happened. But after that conversation, one of the two that hears it, that's Andrew. The first thing he does is he goes and he finds his brother, Simon. He has heard the word of Christ. He has heard the word of Jesus. And notice, what is his first response? He goes out and he seeks the person that presumably is the most closest in his life. And he says to him, we have found the Messiah. We have found the Christ. We have found that long-awaited hope. We have found that one that John says he was preparing the way for. We have found that prophet that was prophesied. Deuteronomy chapter 18. We have found that royal son of David. All these things Nathaniel will confess later. But now you can imagine that conversation, what's happening. Andrew bursting into the house, finding Simon Peter at one task or another, going to him and saying, you got to come with me. You have to come see this man I met, this Jesus. He's everything that Israel has hoped for for thousands and thousands of years. The Lord has been quiet for hundreds of years. But now he's spoken. He's spoken in this word. He is the one. He is the Messiah. See, Andrew, in a real way, even though this is the first true evangelism we get in John's gospel, it sets a model for us. Which one of us can remember in our own life, whether young or old when we came to Christ, upon hearing, upon receiving that wonderful news that there is salvation In Jesus, the forgiveness of our sins, the reconciliation of a relationship with our Father. What was our first response at that time? What did we do? I I was young when I came to faith. I don't remember exactly a time when I didn't know Jesus. But I know that in those hours where that sweetness of the gospel, of that good news that there is life in Christ, when that truly settles home, my first instinct is, glorify God and I got it. I want to go tell somebody about it. I want to share that good news. Many of us who had conversions later in life, you can understand that when you came to Christ 
from a family that did not believe? What was your instinct? You wanted to go to them. You wanted to talk to them. You wanted to tell them about that new hope that had been given to you. That new right to life that comes in Christ. That there doesn't have to be despair and sin. That there doesn't have to be pain and sorrow and suffering for vanity, for nothing's sake. That death is not the last word. That relationships actually have true and vital meaning. That eternity, it can be in your grasp. You want to tell that message to those that you love the most. Andrew is a model for that. And this will be the model for how the church grows. Take it to heart. We should be like Andrews in this regard. It's no wonder that so many churches around this country and around the world are called St. Andrews. It's the church in which I did my internship. St. Andrews. Because this man is a model for what the fire of Christ should propel us to do in this faith. We've got to speak it. We have to tell it. We have to go out and make other disciples. That is exactly what Andrew does. And he starts first and foremost with his brother. And he brings him to Jesus. And as I mentioned when I was reading it, Jesus fixes his eyes on Peter. Right? He, just, he identifies him. It's almost like, you you ever know those people who just have that ability with their glare, just like nail you to the floor? You know, I mean, there are certain people, I think, I think school administrators are probably the best at it, you know, so if you see, like right now, Glenn's looking at me, I'm just like, oh, you know, like, I (laughs) I don't know what to do, I'm back in sixth grade. Um, So they probably have that, that best gift, right? I don't think I have it. I always waver quick enough, I can't do it, but... As, as good as Glenn or Carolyn or Pam's glare is, right? As good as those glares are, right? I'm sorry. It couldn't have been as good as Jesus. <laughs> you know, it couldn't have been as good as Jesus. And so Jesus fixes his eyes on Peter, right? He just nails him to the floor right then and there. I got you, Sean. I got you. He nails him to the floor right then and there. And he says, you shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Now we'll have recourse to talk more in the future about this Peter, but what I want to emphasize on is what Jesus is saying. Notice notice that Jesus and John the Baptist are being compared here. John's role is to identify the Christ. That's all he can do. All he can do is point the way. All he can do is to point the finger. But notice what Jesus is doing here. He's not just identifying Peter. He's not just calling him out. He's actually describing what he will make him. Do you see the difference? John's testimony can only bear witness to something outside of himself. But what Peter will be, Peter will be a testimony to the recreation that Jesus will make of him. This is the second Adam. The first Adam could only point at an animal and give it a name. Whether it was hippo, zebra, bearded dragon, whatever. He could just look at that animal and give it a name. Jesus can look at Peter, fix him to the ground, and he can tell him what he will make him. This is the power of the Spirit that rests on him and remains. This is the power of of the Christ. Do you see what John is saying? He says, believe this testimony. This isn't just the Baptist. This is the word 
himself. The one who can see into the hearts of men and can change them for light and good. Who can change them from one who would betray him. From one who in his weakness would turn the Christ over to others. To one who would become the rock in his church. Do you believe this testimony? Look at Peter. Look at what this rock will become and believe. But the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. His work is done in Bethany. On the Transjordanian side. I wish I had a map here. I wish I could show this. Joel and I were talking about this. I wish I had a map where I could show what Jesus is going to do. Because, and, and maybe I'll find a way to make that an insert or something like that. But Jesus starts in this Transjordanian region. And John is going to make sure that he hits all those geographic points of the promised land. You see, the king is here. And he's going to show control and witness to every part of his kingdom. First, with Judea and Samaria, and then through his apostles, through all the world. But this is the next geographical move that Jesus is going to make. He goes into the Galilee, Galilee, and he finds Philip. Some people have argued, actually, that the one who finds Philip is Andrew. It's a pretty good argument, because Andrew is the one who brings testimony all over the place. So it's a pretty good argument, but we'll go with Jesus here, right? He finds Philip, because it's actually in the original Greek translation, the name is not mentioned. Okay, so when I provide Jesus there, I'm actually providing a little bit of interpretation. That's why we must remember, and I'm probably going to say this about a million times, and I'll recognize that at some point a tomato or a rock is going to get thrown, but I'm going to say it a million times. Every translation is interpretation. Right now I'm interpreting that it's Jesus here. And he finds Philip and says to him, follow me. His church is growing. His disciples are growing. Philip has this great gift that he's identified by the master to be his disciple. And apparently he comes because his first response is just like Andrew. We see that reiterated again. It's a model and a message for us today. When that calling comes into your life, you got to share it. You don't hide it under a bushel. No. Right? You're going to let it shine. And Philip does that immediately. He's from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And he goes and he finds Nathaniel. This is his friend. Nathaniel probably being the Bartholomew introduced in the synoptics. One and the same. And he says to him, We have found the one of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. You see... Philip introduces Jesus in the way that you would expect. Just like if I was going and I had my son next to me and we met some people, I'd say, this is my son, Talis. Or if you were introducing yourself, for instance, you didn't have your family around you and you were introducing yourself to people you didn't know, you'd go up to them and say, hi, my name is Justin Estrada. Like, that's our common greeting. In this way, Philip gives all the relevant information that you would expect to receive about somebody in first century Palestine. But notice... It's not just that information that he gives. There are two things that he introduces here. First, he introduces that Jesus is the fulfillment of all messianic expectation from the Old Testament. He is the one who the law and the prophets wrote about. In other words, Jesus, Philip is saying that Jesus is the fulfillment 
of the Old Testament. He is that prophet from Deuteronomy chapter 18. He is that star I've already mentioned from Numbers chapter 24 that even that pagan prophet Balaam could announce. He is the son from Psalm 2 that David wrote about. He is all those things. But notice, he is also from Nazareth. You know You know what Philip is thinking as he's saying this. Just know it. He's like, we have found, look how he, how he leads. He says, we found the Messiah. We found the guy. By the way, he's Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. You know, like, you know that that's how he feels. He's probably sat at Jesus' feet. This question has been turning over in their minds. We've talked about this actually leading up in the Christmas season. Nazareth was nothing to anybody. Look, as we're going to see, Nathaniel was a Galilean himself. And notice how he responds. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was just like right down the road from him. And still he thought it was a a dump, right? He thought it was no place of any importance. It's never mentioned in the Old Testament. It's never mentioned in any Midrashic rabbinical literature, any Talmudic passage. Nazareth gets no attention. As a matter of fact, in the history of the church, people will actually call it the Nazarene sect as an insult, as a slur, because the place was so disparaged and looked down upon, even by the people who were from the Galilean region, who were looked down upon by the people from the Judean region. I don't know what's what's a common expression you know of this in the Baltimore region right I'm sure it is I I probably won't say that out loud lest I offend but we've all been in places where you knew like that person was from that place right you know um, that person's from mm, down the street there what's that Dundalk Dundalk? Uh uh-oh uh-oh Steve said it you were all thinking it you were all thinking it don't deny it Steve said it you were all thinking it um, if you have if you have beef with that, then you got to go after Steve. I warn you, though, he's tough, man. He's wiry. Um, so, yeah, he's like he's like the he's like the Dundalkite. I don't know how else you would say that in that regard. And so, you know, right when Philip says it, you know what he's expecting to hear from Nathaniel. And Nathaniel plays. I mean, he plays right into it. Nazareth. This is one of the amazing things of the gospel. This is one of the amazing things of the gospel. Jesus comes, even though he's, he's born in Bethlehem, of the line of David, they can't see past Dundalk. Right? Can anything good come out of Dundalk or Nazareth? It's a place with no expectation. It's a place of abasement. So Philip says to him, come and see at once. Notice whose words he repeats here. Who's he, who's he mimicking? He's mimicking Jesus. Come and see it once. You don't believe me? You don't believe me? Come see it for yourself. And then deny it. And Nathaniel does, to his credit. He comes to him, to Jesus that is. And Jesus calls him from afar. Right, we can acknowledge that despite Nathaniel's doubts at the beginning, we can say at the very least, Nathaniel had the willingness to come and to find out for himself. It's like when we bear testimony. How many of us have invited people to church? We say, come to our church. Come and see our pastor. He's kind of crazy. He's kind of kooky, right? But that being said, you know, come and hear what he has to say. Come join our fellowship. 
Be a part of our community. Sing with us. Hear the message of the gospel. And how many of them have responded to us? Oh, no, I've been to church. I know what that's about. I know about Jesus. Or I'm happy with what I believe. I'm happy, I'm happy with the beliefs I have. Oh, that way is good for you, but I have another way. We've, I would hope that, although on the one hand, I would hope that our reception has been better than that. Nonetheless, I'm sure, I would hope that all of us have had those conversations at some point in time where we have invited people to church, like Andrew, like Philip, a responsibility that we have to come and sit at the foot of the master, not for me, but at the word of God itself. And we've been rebuffed by somebody who says they don't want it, they already know about it, and their preconceptions are not willing to be changed. But apparently, Nathaniel's preconceptions, he's willing to challenge them. For that reason, Jesus looks at him and says to him, Truly an Israelite in whom there is nothing false. You can say, I... I when I say this passage, I'll be honest, it confused me for a long time. It, it confused me for a long time when I was growing up. I never understood what he was meant to be saying to Nathaniel. But when I read it now, having read the Gospel of John so many times, over and over, and you see all, and then the Gospel, you see all of those delegations that are going to be sent to Jesus. And each time they're always looking to trip him up, to trap him, to accuse him to rebuff him, to put him down, to deny his claims. They're going to come one after the other after the other, whether he's at the temple in Jerusalem. I mean, he has to go and he has to escape sometimes from them. But they're going to keep coming after him to deny him, to accuse him, to thwart him. You must have, The relief that he must have felt to see one come before him who actually came to hear what he had to say without preconception. Finally, somebody comes to see and to hear this message of hope. Nathaniel says to him, how do you know me? So Jesus reveals something supernatural. He gives him a little supernatural revelation. I saw you under the fig tree. Now some people have thought that Jesus just had excellent like 2015 vision. I come to learn that that's better than 2020. Um, apparently. Do we know this? 2015? This was never a thing when I grew up. Um, now I guess people can actually have better vision than 2020. So Jesus was walking along, and he looks from afar, and he sees this guy under a fig tree, right? So he's slipping one in here. Nathaniel must have been, like, reading a book, you know, or a scroll, I guess, or doing something, talking. He didn't see Jesus, and Jesus spotted him from afar, and so he kind of used this information to trap him, to lure him. That's not what Nathaniel thinks, apparently. Oftentimes, homes had fig trees, actually. They used it for shade. Apparently, a fig tree can grow very large and have very lush branches to provide shade. You'd put one in the courtroom of your house so that on a nice day, you could go out into the middle and you could sit under its shade and enjoy your own company or the company of somebody else under that shade while still having access to the elements outside. Nathaniel doesn't seem to think that this is an ordinary, regular occurrence because notice his response. He says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. He calls him the Messiah. He says, you're the Messiah. You're everything Philip said you would be. He exercises belief. Whatever the nature of the revelation, he exercises belief at it. 
Notice it's a meager belief, though. These titles are associated. Son of God, King of Israel. Together, what they're really influencing here is that he sees Jesus as the Messiah, as the political liberator, as the king that will come to free Israel from its foreign oppressors. He sees him as a true son of God in the same way that perhaps David is called the son of God throughout the Old Testament. Second Samuel chapter 7. When God makes a covenant with David and calls him his son. Psalm chapter 2 I've already mentioned. Where the king is called the son of God. And various other places throughout scripture. You can see that because he couples it with king of Israel. There he sees the one who is going to lead them in triumph against their enemies. But Jesus says hold up. He says don't go that far. Don't go that route. I'm not going to claim those titles necessarily. Not the way you think about them. As a matter of fact. The revelation that you have, that you see, falls far short of what I'm going to reveal. Because truly, truly, I say to you, all you will, to you all. And now you notice he's talking not just to Nathaniel. He's talking to disciples and everybody that will fall under their ministry. He says, truly, truly, I say to you all, plural, you will see heaven standing open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Do you remember what that's a reference to? Kiddos, I'm going to ask you this question. Do you remember what Jesus is referring to here from the book of Genesis? Any idea? It's a tough one. Genesis chapter 28. This is when Jacob, that Israelite who fool of guile, having fooled his brother Esau to receive the blessing and the promise of God's people, is running He's escaping his brother's wrath. Notice he's not like Andrew. He's not trying to go to his brother, declare the good news, and say, hey, I guess I'm the promised one. No, he's not doing that, right? He's running from him, full of guile and deceit. And there on his way, he receives a vision of a ladder. And on that ladder, angels are going up and angels are going down. And there's one standing at the top of it who promises Jacob that he will be the one from, whom, from whose line all the nations of the world will be blessed. And when Jacob awakes, he takes that stone, he sets it up as a pillar, and he calls the place Bethel, the house of God. Jesus references that. Because there he has an Israelite standing before him without deceit. Not like Jacob. But standing before that Israelite without deceit is the latter itself. He's saying, you think that that supernatural revelation was big? Look what you're seeing right now. You are more blessed than your father Jacob, who was renamed Israel, from whom the 12 tribes of, of Israel came, through whom our entire nation has its birth. You're receiving revelation greater than him because what stands before you is that ladder itself. What stands before you is the testimony that that relationship between heaven and earth has come in its fullness and the one who's bringing it, the one who is going to consolidate it, the one who is going to give you vision of the father himself who stands at that top of the ladder, you're looking at him. Do you believe that testimony? Will you follow me? Will you come and you see? 
that same question that John gives to Nathaniel. Notice, there's no answer. What does Nathaniel do? We don't know. I mean, we know he follows Jesus. He follows this son of man, but it ends there. You see, because the son of man was more than a political liberator. That's why Jesus took that title. Instead, he was, he was liberator of hearts and minds and souls and strength. Free to love and worship him. Free from the sting of death and condemnation. Free from the fear that eternity could never be long for. And he stood before Nathaniel. And what John is saying right now in this passage is that this ladder, this gateway to heaven itself, it stands before you too. Before you and me. Do you believe that greater revelation of the Son of Man? Will you see and will you follow? listening to another episode of Redeemer Sermon Series. We are a small Presbyterian church located in Kingsville, Maryland. You can find us on the web at RedeemerKingsville.com.